On today's Truth Factor discussion, we're going to continue in Acts chapter 17, where we find Paul and Silas sailing to a beautiful city called Thessalonica. And Paul's going to tell us a little bit about that journey, about not his and Silas's trip, but Paul's and Silas's trip. So we'd like to thank you for joining us for our study today. Paul, I'll turn it over if you, uh, to you, and if you would, let everyone know how they can participate in today's study. Uh, certainly, John. Uh, we are on YouTube.com, Facebook.com, and Twitter.com. And in each case, we're at Truth Factor Live. Uh, if you'd like to send us an email, uh, that's questions at truthfactor.com. And we're also available individually, uh, Paul or John or Tom or Mark. Uh, we don't have a Mark, a Mike, uh, or uh, Shelton at truthfactor.com if you wanted to send us a private message. But the questions will be a group distribution, and we'd be happy to answer any questions you might have. And if you make comments through those social media or even on our truthfactor.com live viewing page, uh, we will try to bring those in as we study along together. And we actually even introduce questions that are specifically for our uh, online viewers who might like to send us a text type question. Uh, was there anything else before we jump into our study, John? No, I don't think so, Paul. I think that's a good coverage. So I'll go ahead and if you would, take her away. Well, we're going to begin today and we're going to look about uh, how Paul is He's run out of two different cities, and then he winds up in uh, what would be considered to be the educational capital uh, of that ancient world, and look at what he has to do there. So we'll look at three different cities, if we have time today, of uh, Paul's work in those places as he's traveling, traveling along uh, on this preaching trip, and he's got Silas, and now he's also got Timothy along with him. And so we're going to begin with reading Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Uh, in our notes, I didn't assign those readings. So would there be a volunteer who would like to read Acts 17, 1 through 9? Shelton Wood. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Shelton Wood. I was just going to say, I think that's Shelton volunteering. And so once he <laughs> unmutes himself, he's going to read Acts 17, 1 through 9. All right, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Verse 1 starting says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and uh, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Very good. I appreciate you reading that, Shelton. And we have a question that we've introduced into the chat uh, that uh, I, I at least dropped it into the YouTube chat. I don't know if anyone else is able to 
uh, drop those questions in anywhere else, but maybe if you just listen uh, closely. This will be a question we'll come back to. And, and for those of you watching, we'd like for you to type out the answer and, and let us know your thoughts. And why did Paul do some of his teaching specifically on the Sabbath day? And in a city like uh, Thessalonica, we might even expand that. And why did Paul do it on the Sabbath day in the synagogue? And so hopefully you'll take a look at that and, and we can uh, discuss that here in a few moments. Now among our panel here, uh, I'll start with uh, Tom. And Tom, what was synagogue activity like? Well, what was it like on... For, for the Jews uh, that were not in Jerusalem, where they were uh, daily in the temple that we read about, but that they were in these faraway cities and they would have a built a synagogue there. What was synagogue life like? Right. Well, honestly, I don't know a whole lot about synagogues, you know, uh, uh, other than the fact that uh, there had to be a minimum number of Jewish men in a particular city. I think it was like 10 in order to be able to build a synagogue and 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 basically what they would do is they would gather together on on saturdays or the sabbath and uh they would read the law uh they would read the law i assume they would pray and they would sing and do things like that they did not engage in the uh sacrifices there because that was restricted to jerusalem so but i mean this was the weekly gathering place of of a Jew, Jewish believers following the old law. Um, you know what I noticed uh, more than anything else about synagogue life, uh, Tom, was that it was very much ruled by the tradition of the Jews. Yes. Uh, there is no uh, extensive instruction about how they were to behave or what they were to do or, or what was to go on or how it was to be built, but yet there were some very specific rules about that and they were from the traditions that had been handed down, but it would be a gathering place, uh, certainly, of Jews. Now, Shelton, there's a, a phrase here that as Paul went there and he's preaching, it says in the New King James Version, in verse 3, that he's explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. And so, demonstrating, uh, and I don't know, uh, when I read that uh, out of the New King James Version, I thought, well, is he acting it out? Uh, what would be some other words that uh, maybe other translations or um, maybe explaining this idea of demonstrating what that means? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I found it pretty interesting to use that word too when I read it through the first time. Uh, and in the Greek, you know, I think the meaning there is pretty much just to uh, present it, uh, to make an implication, uh, to uh, put forth or set before uh, them. So I think it kind of helps us understand uh, what he's trying to say there, but I thought really the translation that set the point home to me the most was the ESV. The ESV used the word proving uh, to the people, and 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 so I, I really I really like that explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer, uh, making this point to them very well. Uh, the ASV and the King James version says the word alleging. Uh, but, but I think when we get down to the, the meaning of that Greek word, it's just to set before them the truth, the fact of, the, of what happened. The New American Standard, I, I do like that proving because the New American Standard there says giving evidence. And mm -hmm. I thought that was a, a good uh, combination of those two, two translations. And we learned something here. Sometimes when you read something, you say, well, what does exactly does that mean? Well, maybe we need to dig a little deeper. And I would not suggest going to just any translation, but respected 
uh, translations we can take a look at and we can understand and, and uh, get a handle on those things. We read about there's preaching that goes on here. And Mike, I wanted you to tell us, uh, he says that it's Jesus whom he preaches, but uh, he doesn't talk a lot about that. He's reasoning with them from the scriptures. Uh, what kind of preaching is going on? What is this preaching? What message was it that was preached, Mike? Mike, you're muted, and so I uh, I should have reminded you about that. But uh, That's fine. Here we go. Okay, um, go ahead. He was preaching the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, as he says, explaining and demonstrating uh, that Christ had to suffer, that would be his death, and rise again, well, you can't rise again without being buried, rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is the Christ. So by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God proved to the world that he is indeed the Son of God. Uh, that's right, and uh, Tom mentions here that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, and I uh, appreciate that. He's preaching Christ, who he is, and what he's done, and, and that's, the, that's the foundation message that we have to uh, rely upon. I think you gave a good answer there, uh, Mike, as we look at that. Uh, John, uh, going to you, uh, what groups of people were converted? You know, when the gospel is preached, not everyone's converted, and sometimes we read about there's certain uh, devout people, maybe sometimes men, uh, sometimes Jews or Gentiles. Well, who was it that was converted here and became followers? Well, Paul, when you look there um, specifically at verse 4, he makes a point, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul. He says, um, a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Um and I suspect the devout Greeks would probably be the Greeks that had been converted to Judaism, proselyted. But uh, much like Lydia, as well as the uh, Cornelius, these individuals were devout, they were believers in God, and they were converted to the faith. Often you just read about men being converted. Uh, oh, that's maybe what that's... you're looking for. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Uh, no, I, I, I was looking for exactly what you said. Here we have uh, that multitude of Greeks, Obviously, he's already said that there were some Jews that were uh, were persuaded, while there's some that were not. Uh, and but there were some men and women, and in those uh, maybe that like Day of Pentecost, we mainly it mentions men. And whether it means that in the generic sense of mankind or not, I, I don't know. Uh, but here we do read about women being converted. Women were part of the church, and we see that in other places. I just thought it was worth mentioning. That is interesting. Uh, as we looked at this, and so. Uh, Tom, I want to jump back to you here. And so we read that there were some Jews that were not converted and that they did some things opposing Paul because they were envious. Uh, in what sense were they envious? Uh, well, Paul was coming and preaching something that would have probably reduced their power. And uh, so uh, they were jealous, and, and they, they were like typical ones that you read about in Jerusalem. Very, very jealous for the law of Moses, not willing to change, uh, you know, not willing to consider that Jesus was the fulfillment that they were looking for. And so, like, like just about everywhere that Paul went, he had this group that they would come after him, or, or they rejected him as a result of that. So, of course, in this case, it says they took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and they gathered a mob, so they actually stirred up the city. And and there's nothing that says that this evil mob was a group of Jews. 
So they did uh, they did whatever they needed to do to cause trouble. Yeah, there even seems to be some evidence from what I read about this that there is the idea that the Jews stirred up the Gentiles. But but we could talk yeah. about that maybe an, a, another time. Now we read about Jason here. A couple of different things about Jason. Mike, I'll kind of jump over to you. And I was wondering, uh, when we read about Jason, uh, we don't know a lot about him, but what do we know about Jason? Well, we know he was a house owner. We know that he was attacked. And so evidently, he is one that agreed with Paul and Silas as they were preaching. He might even have been a member of the church. Uh, some have suggested that he was... Uh, one of the men whose uh, house might have been fixed or attached to the synagogue. But at this reference, there's no, uh, there's no indication of that. There is at another place in the book of Acts. So uh, anything else on my part would be pure assumption. I'm just going to say that the evidence shows that he's a member of the church, that these angry, evil men attacked in retaliation to the gospel that Paul was preaching because Jason agreed with him. Yeah, and they, they went to Jason's house because they figured they could find uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy there because it says when they didn't find them, they yeah. dragged Jason out. And That's it true. Like they, they persecuted him in a number of ways. So, uh, you know, we don't read a lot about Jason, but Jason is somewhat of a hero of the faith uh, mm -hmm. here in New Testament times. He is willing to suffer persecution uh, for the cause. He may not have been the one out preaching and the one in the trenches, but he was willing to help support the preaching that Paul was doing and Silas and, and Timothy were doing. But here is, as he does that, he's going to suffer because of his even association with them. Paul, in, in that regard, let me make a very quick comment here. Yeah. That's what we preachers, though we're, well, like yourself and John, you are also elders, but that's something that we gospel preachers really appreciate are those individuals within a local congregation that don't want to be noted. They don't want any fanfare. They get embarrassed when their names are mentioned, but they're the ones whose lives portray precisely what we're trying to get the world to see and understand. Absolutely. That, that's just a joy to me. And God honored Jason by putting his name in God's book. That's right. And when we think about that, Every congregation needs some Jasons, those who may behind the scenes do very righteous deeds of good, good acts. They support and will stand with those who would preach the truth. And uh, I know that we have Jasons here. You probably have Jasons there. And by that, I don't mean people mm -hmm. with that name, the people who do that kind of work. Uh, let me jump over and uh, I have a question I'm going to add here, kind of a surprise. But maybe, Shelton, the accusation is made against Paul and Timothy and Silas. And I'm going to read it here. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Uh, would you consider that accusation? Now, it is. It's considered a, that they were inciting riots, that they were troublemakers. Uh, they were involved, maybe uh, sedition might be a, a phrase that we would associate with that. But if you would just take that at face value, would you consider that accusation to be uh, objectionable? Or do you think that Paul and Silas and Timothy would have worn that, uh, that accusation? So, yep, that, that's about it. Well, I mean, when, when you talk about the idea of turning the world upside down, I mean, really bringing something that 
is troubling a lot of people and a lot of people are getting mad at it, but it's, you know, it's the truth. And I think a lot of the times that's the reason why they're mad at it is because they understand the truth in it and they don't want to. Uh, I don't think that accusation is, is wrong at all. I think that they have come and they have, you know, turned the world upside down. They've brought the gospel and, you know, it hasn't been accepted, but to think that that was their, their goal, you know, that would be the accusation that I would not agree with in the sense that they brought this just for the purpose of causing these riots or just for the purpose of stirring people up. I, you know, I don't think that that would be it. They of course brought it uh, for the salvation of souls. Uh, but you know, indeed it did turn the world upside down. What a great point there. And so uh, I would say whether he's just talking about Paul and Timothy and Silas or all those who are preaching the gospel, that this whole thing is just turn the world upside down that, that it would be a good uh, thing to say. That's what they were to do. Jesus says, go into all the world. And so I appreciate that, uh, that, that they would have they would have wanted to do that. Uh, real quick, Tom. Yeah, uh, uh, just the idea of uh, this is an example of a truth that is stated that is misrepresented. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, t- taking something truthful and twisting it in such a way so that it doesn't mean what is intended. Yes, they turn the world upside down, but the way it's being used here is in a negative way. Uh, matter of fact, you go to that next statement in verse number seven, they're saying there's another king, Jesus. Again, that's a true statement, but the way that they're using it is as if to imply that they're rebelling against the Roman Empire, which they were not. It's been a common uh, tactic that's been used. <laughs> Yes. And something they know is is not true. Now, yes, John, Tom, it's a logical fallacy. John, here's the surprise question that I'm going to throw out for you. Do you think that the efforts that were put forth in Thessalonica were a success or were a failure? We see some things happen, and then we see that they're taken and uh, they have to, or, or choose to, I suppose, leave Thessalonica in the face of this uh, riot that's going on? Success or failure, John? Paul, the way I kind of see it is that if if their efforts had been a failure, there would be no letters to the Thessalonians. We have two letters that Paul wrote. And we would not see the growth of the church within the city itself. I'm sure there are great efforts made to try to put a stop to it. But looking at what was left behind when Paul and Silas continued onward, there definitely was great success in their efforts. Yeah, people were converted to Christ. Yeah. Uh, it says that there weren't even, it doesn't even describe them as a small number. Right. Uh, but, but instead many. So people were converted to Christ, and there is good work that's going to continue to be done in Thessalonica, even in the face of persecution. Yeah. Sometimes I think the Thessalonians get a bad rap and that's because of something that's said about the Bereans. We'll look at it in just a minute. But some really good things and some really good people were there at Thessalonica. And so we'll, we'll take a look at that. Go ahead, John. Oh, uh, one, one quick thought you mentioned. I think, and we'll, you'll talk about this here in a minute. The reason why they get a bad rap is because brethren misread the statement about the Bereans and who they are being compared to. Yes, I think you're right. Yeah, that's all. I think I think you are right about that. Now let's jump back and quickly look at the chat room question. 
Why did Paul do some of his teaching specifically on the Sabbath? And I added to that, uh, in particular, in the synagogue and in places where there was a synagogue. And so do we have some answers to that? Looks like we have one from Gregor. Gregor says, says, Go ahead. I'd like for you to read that, please. Gregor says, Christ commanded to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. Sabbath is when they would assemble. Then Paul could preach to those who believe in God first. Paul wrote that even to the Romans, uh, that how the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so oftentimes he would make an effort toward the Jews uh, prior to uh, taking that Gentile message, uh, message to the Gentiles, I should say. And so let's go ahead and uh, proceed on ahead and look at Acts 17, verses 10 through 15. And Tom, why don't you read those verses for us? That's right. Acts 17, 10 through 15. All right. Okay, so here we have, uh, uh, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness, and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Very good. As we look at this, you know, the Bereans had become renowned uh, because of the kind of people that they are. If you would drive around uh, through the country here, you would occasionally see a building, uh, probably really a denomination, not one of the not one of the Lord's churches, but it'll often say some kind of Berean church. You never read about a Corinthian church, certainly, or not even a Thessalonian church. But you read here about uh, people use that as, as a descriptor uh, sometimes. And so let's let's talk about the Bereans. Our question for the chat room uh, is, and I'll have to grab that here in just a moment uh, if I got can. It, oh, you got it? Thank you. Yep. Uh, what scriptures were the Bereans searching? It says that they searched the scriptures. What scriptures were they searching? We'll talk about that at the end of our uh, series of questions. I think I just have three on this, and I might add one surprise. And so, uh, Shelton, I have a question for you, and it's, when Paul arrives in Berea and teaches in the synagogue, in what sense were the Bereans more fair-minded? If you're reading in the King James Version, it says they were more noble. They were more fair-minded. And I said, as a footnote there, after all, there were quite a few converts in Thessalonica. So there seems to be a comparison there, uh, that uh, the experience in Thessalonica, the experience in Berea, and uh, in what sense are those in Thessalonica more fair-minded? Well, we talk about this quite a lot, you know, and that the Bereans searched the scriptures daily uh, to see or to find out whether those things were so, you know, to find out the truth. And we, a lot of the times from the pulpit, at least I will, urge people to take their Bibles out, you know, and to, to listen to what's being said uh, and hope to find it to be true, 
but to search the scriptures, you know, not just to take my word for it or, or John's word for it or any of y'all's word for it, but to search the scriptures to see if they are so. And, and you know, the, the Bereans were commended for that in the scriptures. But I think the part that we don't talk about as much is that they received the word with all readiness. You know, I think they're commended for that, too, that when the word was taught, they received it. They were ready to receive it. And they had this this passion, this fire about them to search the scriptures, to know what God's will for them is and, and to do it. They, uh, I think the difference that you see from those Christians in Thessalonica, though, the, though they were converted to Christ and though they accepted the word, I think the Bereans probably had more of that fire that was burning inside of them and that passion to to serve God. And it will be interesting uh, to know what your chat room uh, question and answers might be on what scriptures they were searching. Yeah, John, I think maybe you and I also had some similar thoughts on this. I think what Shelton says is right, uh, that here we have some, it's a great compliment to the Bereans, but who at Thessalonica is being, uh, I guess I should say, who at Berea is being compared with whom at Thessalonica? Do you have any thoughts, John? I do. Um, You notice he specifically says when he identifies them, he says the Jews, okay? Um, now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. If you go back and look at those who were converted, Thessalonica talked about the devout Greeks um, and many prominent women. You don't see a large number of just, if you would, straight-up Jews being converted in Thessalonica. And the way this continues to read here, the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? They received the word with all eagerness. That's the first part examining the scriptures daily. So he's he's contrasting them to the Jews who did not receive the word because they did not compare it to the scriptures and see that it was true. Yeah, he certainly wasn't saying the Christians at Thessalonica exactly. were uh, better uh, or were worse than the Christians yeah. at Berea. Uh, I've heard instead, preachers preach it that way, but it that's not the comparison. But instead, uh, we read about a very good reception at Thessalonica. But I think you're right that the idea is that while many of the Jews rejected Paul at Thessalonica, here he has a better hearing when he goes into the synagogue of the Jews. Uh, they are more receptive to his teaching. And he's comparing the, those who rejected uh, right out uh, with those who are at least willing to consider some things. I think Tom had a comment like that, that willing to consider and to think about those things. Now, uh, we can jump over to, uh, I don't know where I am. Uh, I know where I am, but uh, I guess I'll go to Mike. Uh, why was there trouble stirred up in Berea? What If here the, the, the initial reaction to Paul and Silas and, and Timothy, if the initial reaction is that they were kind of searching what got things stirred up and caused some trouble there? Well, I believe, Paul, that it follows on exactly what you and John were just discussing. You had Jews in Thessalonica that, uh, and, and Jews that came from other places kind of chasing Paul that were so set on Moses' law only that anything that contradicted Moses' law, for example, no longer the need to be circumcised, uh, no longer the need to have animal sacrifices, that Christ is the king, that we worship and obey him, that it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that saves now with our obedience to it. These Jews were so intent 
that this new way, this new doctrine was so wrong that they were going to fuss with everybody that they could, especially Paul. He's the target. So after they leave Thessalonica, they come into Berea. They, they make the same type of riotous statements about it, apparently, because they, they came from Thessalonica. They learned that the word of God was preached. Well, it was the same thing that Paul preached in Thessalonica. So they came also and stirred up the crowds. Immediately, when the brethren find that out, they protect Paul by getting him out of town. But these angry Jews are, we've adopted a name called Judaizers. They wanted to protect the law of Moses and only the law of Moses. Now, an interesting statement with that. The Jews at Berea may well have found that Paul was accurate with that because the scriptures that they were searching, and I'm not going to give away your answer, Moses had said, there will arise a prophet from among your people and among your kindred like to me. To him shall you hearken. That's Jesus. And those in Berea may well have discovered that through their searching of the scriptures, while those in Thessalonica didn't take the time to prove that statement. That's right. And they are so adamant against uh, those who have turned the world upside down with this teaching that mm -hmm. they not only are, get it out of their city, they are chasing Paul down and they chase him to another city. And finally he gets on a ship and, and we'll sail away. But that, yeah. that's a really good answer there. Um, Mike, I appreciate that. And uh, again, I've lost uh, my order. I had an order I was going in. I'll jump back to Tom and just say, uh, did you notice how Paul's presence impacted cities that he went to? Uh, sometimes it, it's, um, it's good. Sometimes it's uh, being stirred up in a, uh, there's trouble like here at Thessalonica, Berea, uh, Ephesus, there was a riot. Uh, different places, we, we see that kind of thing going. Uh, someplace received Paul uh, readily in his teaching. We're going to see that when he enters into Athens, uh, that they want to hear him. I'm not going to give too much of that away, but they want to hear him. And, and so do you notice that, uh, Tom, everywhere Paul went, there was some reaction. It wasn't just, oh, I wonder who he is. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that's absolutely true. Don't forget, Paul's an apostle, and he has all the abilities that an apostle has. Don't forget that along with what Paul is teaching, and for many of them this is new about there's only one God, he's also doing miracles. So he's doing things in these cities that gets people's attention, and I think that that's why, that's why this is taking place here, and, and he has impact wherever he goes. Yes. And if we were to ask the same question, I mentioned a surprise question, but was the work in Berea a success or a failure? Well, it's a success. He's got people thinking about the gospel. Uh, there are some who believe and hear and uh, who hear, believe and obey uh, the gospel. But as you look at that, you understand also that he was run out of town. Facing opposition and facing difficulty and being run out of town did not make the work in that city a failure. Uh, yeah. It was a success. Oh, yeah. but, but, Go ahead, Tom. Yeah, I was going to say, but remember this, in this particular town, the reason he's run out of town is because of troublemakers that come from outside. People come from another place and cause trouble there. And we find that over and over in Acts. Go yeah, ahead, Mike. And you might, you might take a look at that and also realize this, that I would not hold the, those citizens of Berea innocent because they allowed that to be done in their yeah, city absolutely. as well. 
Uh, Absolutely. When someone, hey, a troublemaker comes along, even among God's people today, uh, congregations that tolerate that and accept that and, and don't deal with troublemakers, uh, they bear some trouble in that also. But I want to go on to Mike and let him uh, make the comment on this section that he'd like to make. Well, it is it, a very quick comment. When you look at the book of uh, Philippi, or the Philippians, Paul makes that observation you just commented on. Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being preached. Regardless of the preaching of it, it will be effective one way or the other. It will stir people to obedience, or it will make them angry. Pentecost Day, it stirred people to obedience. When Stephen preached the same sermon to the Sanhedrin, made them angry. Here you see a combination of the two at Thessalonica, Berea. You're going to see it again at Athens and all the time. It has an effect, whether it's preached in pretense or in truth. Those of us that know the more positive preach it in truth. Now, Mike, you, uh, you know, times are different now, and you probably never have anyone get angry when you preach, do they? You don't want to see that list. <laughs> You know, when you preach the truth, that happens sometimes. It does. We it does. all never entered cities to try to cause trouble. Uh, that's no. what Tom was saying earlier. He never no. entered the cities to try to cause trouble. But if trouble came from the away from it. gospel, that was okay. There, there's no sense to run away from it. The Lord said, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. He knew that the preaching of truth was going to cause problems with some people because they simply would not do as these Bereans did and pick up the scriptures to find out that what is being said is absolute truth. That's the same problem today. We're not trying to criticize, castigate, eliminate, or whatever the word is, and, and and just ridicule other people. That's not our job as preachers. No. We're teaching the truth. And if that truth offends you, I'm not going to apologize for saying what Christ said. I'm not going to apologize for the scriptures. By the same token, it's not my purpose to make you angry. No. We'll beg you to go to the book and see that it's not me saying it. It's the inspiration of God's word that records it. So you're really not angry at me, and you're not arguing with me. You're arguing with God, and with due respect, I know who's going to win that argument. And in some cases, it's the hit dog that howls. Absolutely. Uh, Tom has a very quick thought. Yeah, yeah uh, you know, yeah. Remember, when Paul leaves these places, I want you to know that he doesn't leave because he has to. Or, I mean, he doesn't leave because he's running away from things. I believe the reason he's leaving is for the sake of the brethren that are there. He doesn't want to cause more trouble to them. So it's always thinking about others. And, and always having someplace else to go on to. Uh, yeah. he's, he's got a, a pace that he's trying to trying to set. Yeah. Uh, Mike, I was going to have you read now in Acts 17. Sure. So we've seen what happened in Thessalonica. Uh, Paul here is, is uh, he, he leaves Thessalonica. Paul leaves Berea. The brethren get him out of town. And uh, we're going to see what happens beginning in chapter sixteen, uh, chapter 17, verses 16 through 21. Uh, I think I, I skipped something here. Let me go back. Did we do the... Uh, we did not. Uh, I need to hold off on that. Mike, you be sure. ready for that. But let's go ahead and pick up the question that I had for the chat room. And that was, what scriptures were the Bereans searching? What questions were the Bereans searching? 
And, well, we have, a, uh, we have a comment from Gregor. Go ahead. Actually, two comments. He goes, the only ones that existed at the time, the Old Testament. Probably the Septuagint, since Macedonia spoke mostly Greek. But that part is a guess. Yeah, and it would seem to make sense. They would have read it in their native language, which would have been this Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, the Septuagint. Uh, that, that would seem to make sense. But when we read about this, uh, so I, I would agree with that. It would seem that probably what they had available to them at this date would have been primarily those uh, Old Testament scriptures. So is the New Testament scripture? Uh, when you think about that, uh, we look at the, uh, the writings of, I believe it's Peter who talks about the writings of Paul. Uh, he calls them scripture as well as the things that he writes, that they're being twisted. Uh, go ahead, John. You well, look like you had a comment. One of, one of the big things from the, old, from the Old Testament would have been the prophecies. Mm -hmm. Paul undoubtedly referred to several prophecies, and the Bereans could go home, look them up in their Septuagint, and say, yeah, that's what, that's what it says. They'd have got out their iPad, and they'd have just opened up their uh, software. <laughs> uh, well, maybe not, but, uh, but they would have had, had copies they could have looked at and... and uh, benefited from now mike uh let's go ahead and see what happens next we don't want to uh, keep us hanging uh you know like the old show that used to say same bat time same bat channel we don't want to do that we'd like to go ahead and uh, take a look here at verses 16 through 21 to see what happens when paul leaves berea now while paul waited for them at athens his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you're bringing strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but to either tell or to hear some new thing. Very good. Thank you, Mike. And our question for the chat room that we'll look at at the end of this series of questions is, what would it have been like to be a worshiper of the true God in Athens. Uh, we know that there were converts uh, that would uh, be believers in Athens eventually. What would it have been like to be a worshiper of the true God in Athens? Uh, I've not talked with you for a little bit here. Uh, uh, looks like maybe, oh, there's Shelton. Uh, Shelton, uh, after you Unmute yourself. Uh, would you tell us? Uh, it mentions that there are certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, I see the idea of Epicurean sometimes used in our culture today. It's sort of symbolic of something. But what are Epicureans and Stoics and, and their philosophies? Uh, well, the only thing that I know about this, and it's not very much, uh, that's all right is that they were followers the epi the epicureans were followers of uh, epicurus uh, and whatever he taught um 
Uh, and I'm not sure anything about the Stoics. You know, honestly, I've always just heard of these people as uh, uh, those who, at least, you know, where I grew up, they say the people that study themselves dumb. They study themselves, <laughs> they become dumb, you know, and uh, they. Uh, <laughs> well, that's not altogether a, a, a poor evaluation of that. From what I understand about the Epicureans, and, and I'm not an expert on this either, but, you know, sometimes we see Epicureans, people will talk about maybe a particular. Uh, restaurant or something uh, as appealing to the Epicurean philosophy. And that means that the pleasures of life are where the real fulfillment is found. And the Stoics, uh, I think Tom just posted something, they were opposite. Uh, they would have opposed the Epicureans and said, oh no, we need to be very serious. And maybe even to the point of, uh, we just need to focus on trying to suffer and make our lives as difficult and as arduous as possible. And real fulfillment in life is found in that kind of uh, suffering. Seriousness. Seriousness, yeah. Seriousness, yeah. When people has a, have a stoic look about them, it's that, you know, that, that uh, very serious uh, look. And I'm sure that someone will freeze that frame and post it uh, somewhere, but that's all right. John, uh, how does Paul end up in the Areopagus? Here is this uh, post for open-air teaching uh, that they obviously have other teachings that have been going on here, and it seems to be a place where you could go and you could listen uh, to whoever is speaking, and so they want to hear more about this. Uh, how, how does Paul end up there? Well, Paul, he caught the right attention or the attention of the right people. Um, because what was interesting about what he was teaching, he wasn't teaching um, the God that, that, that the, normally would have heard from the Jews, if, if you think about it, from their perspective. You know, so now he's teaching about this, this Jesus Christ. And so we have here that the, um, the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers was asking, what does this babbler wish to say? And, and you'll, you'll probably talk about the word babble here in a moment. Um, so you know, what does this babbler here to say? And so they, they observe that he's talking about foreign deities. So they bring him to the Aragopagus, kind of a little public, where he could give a public speech and more people listen and where they can converse with him on it. Uh, that's right. And you, uh, you called me on the babbler. We're very blessed today in our study that Brian Haynes is a really good Bible student. And Brian uh, provided us with his notes on this chapter uh, to help us out. And I was looking there that the idle babbler, uh, he said literally that means a seed picker. I thought that was pretty good. And the idea uh, here is that Paul had heard, uh, they had heard a little bit of Paul and they wanted to hear more about him, but it was not a compliment. Uh, it's, uh, well, uh, the babbler was um, that he probably is meaningless uh, in his talking. Now, Brian also pointed out something to us in the notes that he had. But, you know, when we've studied about Corinth, there's a certain thing that if someone was described as a Corinthian, or we even talked about Corinthian girls were women with not a good reputation. But people in Athens had a certain uh, thought about them, that they, were, they truly were always looking to find out some new thing, uh, just as the Scripture here says, that historically... That was known uh, of this city, that they were wanting to know some new thing. And Mike, I think I'll throw this out to you. They were searching for new thing. And Paul's preaching something different. Uh, and so 
Should we search for new things? Absolutely. Absolutely. In the sense that we're searching continually for those things that can be proven. The Athenians were a superstitious people, as we'll see later, and they they wanted to make sure. They, they, though the the opposite of Epicurean and Stoic is like di- night and dark or uh, night and day. Nonetheless, we're searching for the absolute conclusion of what makes life best, and uh, both sides were looking for that. Their interest then in seeing some new thing is not as though they're nosy people and want to gossip about it. They're truly searching for, as as Ponce de Leon did, the fountain of youth or the new world or something of of grandeur that allowed them to understand this is the the epitome of what life is all about. When when we look for new things, it's not that it's new and never been seen before. It's that it's new and enlightening to us from the scripture. It's interesting that the, that the Bible is noted as a living word. It never dies. So that whenever we look into it, well, let me just quickly illustrate it as my grandmother did. She was an expert at doing that. She had an old well on her sun porch. And when we'd get done studying Bible, she'd let me go get her a new bucket of water. And as I'd let the old bucket down on the windlass and then crank it back up, grandmother would say, you know, your Bible study is just like my old well. You'll always get a bucket of water, but it'll be a bucket of water you never had before. That's what the enlightenment is of new things that I believe you and I and everybody else needs to investigate. Uh, When we think about this, Um, I study with folks who are much older than I am in our public Bible studies, and they'll come across something, and then this happens to me frequently. Constantly, yeah. We'll read something, and we'll say, you know what? I just never saw that before. Absolutely. I also have this. Just talk about old things and new things. I also have this, that I'll I'll have an idea. Well, wow, look at that. And I'll I'll, uh, research that a little bit, and I'll say, well, I'm not the first one who ever saw that. Uh, you know, there's nothing new in, in Scripture. Yeah. Uh, it's always been there. Yeah. We shouldn't be looking for something besides the Scriptures, but we should always be searching for things that we have not yet learned. That's yeah. exactly right. And it, all of us preachers are guilty of this. I can look at your your office there on the screen and see that you're just like me, and, and I can look at John's, and he's he's worse than either you or me with this. We preachers like to fill our shelves with a lot of books. But you and I, Paul, know a fellow that's a great friend, and and he consistently tells me, I don't understand why preachers have bookcases and books when they only really need to shelve one book. And he's exactly right. So uh, I want to look at this question that I asked you. Great answer, by the way. But the Epicureans and Stoics were opposites in one way, their philosophy, but they were very much alike. Uh, in that they were wanting to hear some new thing, that to either argue about it or, or just uh, the, the idea that, well, I, I hear some new philosophy that I'm not going to agree with, but I'd like to hear it. And so uh, we don't need to be like the Epicureans and Stoics, but we need to always be like the Bereans we talked about, searching the Scripture. Right. John? Right. No, I'm good, Paul. Okay. I thought, I'm sorry. I thought you had a, had a comment. And I did, so, but we can move on. Okay. <laughs> All right. 
Um, did anyone answer the question? I thought it was an unusual question. They may not have. What would it have been like to be a worshiper of the true God in Athens? No one answered that, Paul. You stumped them. Well, I would say it would be challenging. Uh, it would be challenging. You live in a culture that is uh, very worldly. And could you imagine living in a culture that's very worldly, where people have all different kind of ideas about uh, how you ought to live life and what's right and what's wrong, and, and they get confused on those things? Does that sound even vaguely familiar? Uh, maybe like today. Uh, I think living in Athens would have been challenging. Uh, one time Paul is accused that much learning has made him mad. And I'm very afraid that in the center of education there in Athens, that oftentimes much learning had made them crazy. Uh, they had not been able to see what was truly right and what was truly wrong. And so uh, we'll let that go. And maybe you'll uh, ruminate on that a bit and, and have hey, Paul, some thoughts about I do have something on that if you might find it interesting. Yes, would love that. And it's not overly detailed, but it's from the ESV Study Bible notes. They say that Athens was filled with examples of artistic beauty, particularly its statue of the Greek gods and the architectural magnificence of its temple. However, Paul was deeply troubled by the idolatry that the art represented. And then we come on down and um, we read that large portions of central Athens have been excavated Paul would have probably been speaking in the Roman Forum and in the Greek Agora. These were surrounded by great stoas, one of which, the Stoa of Adelos, has been reconstructed for modern viewers. I thought there was one other thing. Some of Athens' most prominent features were its numerous pagan temples. The great temple to Athena, the Parthenon, the Erechtheion, dedicated to multiple deities, and the temple to the goddess Roma, and the emperor Augustus stood atop the Acropolis, overlooking the city. I guess you might say they had about as many temples to gods as we have denominations in our cities. Maybe. I mean, drive around, look at all the buildings. Yeah. Yes. And uh, not only denominations, but religions, yeah. uh, different religions yeah. uh, in the sense of... Uh, That's a better way of putting it. Well, yeah, and, and even in the sense of not even recognizing Christ. Uh, and so you have a very diverse uh, culture. Yeah, I, different worldviews. Worldviews. That's a good way to say that. Yeah. Um, I wish I had said that. Uh, as as one of our other uh, online Bible studies, they say, I wish I had said that. Uh, here looking in Acts 17, verses 22-24, uh, what's the opinion? Uh, and I'll... John, you usually have a good sense for this. You think we can go through these? I've got... Uh, four questions and a chat room question, and it looks like we've got maybe uh, we started a few minutes late. We may have 10 minutes. What do you think? I think we can do it. Um, there might be a thing or two that we miss, but I think we can get the main points here. Okay. Uh, let's go ahead and take a look at that, and uh, I'll go ahead and read here Acts 17, 22 uh, through 34. If you'd read with me. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And therefore the one to whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, 
since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And as determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord, in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own prophets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Sorry about that. By the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this by, to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of them mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Uh, that was the more lengthy reading we've had today uh, as we look at this. And I think... I think I accidentally hung up on someone when I went to grab the phone. But uh, as we look at that, uh, the question for the chat room today is, is it good to be religious? The Bible talks about religion, and is it good to be religious? And we'll, we'll talk about that as we uh, study along uh, today. Um, Tom, uh, I'll go to you with, with the first question. Uh, I ask you to discuss the altar to the unknown God and how Paul uses this as a springboard for his message. You notice how there he says, I looked around, I've seen all your temples, and you've even got one there named uh, to the unknown God. And so tell us about uh, how Paul uses that. Right. Well, well, cl well, clearly the Athenians were pantheist or uh, polytheistic, meaning multiple gods, and they had all these different views. Uh, and what I see in this statue is Paul realized uh, they were so religious that, and they realized that they didn't know everything about the gods. And in case they left one out, they had a statue to the unknown God because they didn't want to offend the unknown God. And that's the purpose. And Paul uses this as a springboard to say, I want to introduce you to that God. And by the way, he is none of the gods that you all are worshiping. You're muted, Paul. I think that's exactly right. And I think that as you look at the notes that Brian gave us, he said that this unknown God was kind of a, a placeholder. Uh, and I thought that was interesting, a, a placeholder, uh, that if in hearing some new thing, they discover some new God that they want to begin worshiping, as Tom said, along with all the others, uh, that they would just add him right in. And, and uh, Brian did a little research into this. It's not anything that's been excavated or found, but it is referenced in history uh, as we look at that. Uh, Shelton, what are some characteristics, and you don't have to be uh, exhaustive in your looking at that, but what are some characteristics that Paul points out are true of the God of heaven, the God that, that he's proclaiming, uh, that you might would be noticeably untrue of those idols. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one thing on the last question, I'll be very, very quick. But I also believe that it, he used it as a springboard to be able to talk to the people because uh, they would have persecuted him, possibly put him to death uh, for preaching against the gods that they worshipped. Uh, and so he uses this to say, you know, hey, I'm going to preach to you this unknown God in order, I think, even to just be able to speak to the people without being, you know, cast out or something like that. But that was just a quick thought on the last point. But getting into uh, the question you asked me there, I think it's all summed up trying to hit the main point uh, in what's said in verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it. Uh, you know, you can talk about how he made from one blood every nation of men and determine their boundaries and their dwellings and, you know, all knowing and, and, and all wise, you know, but I think it all is summed up in the fact that this unknown God is the God uh, that he's proclaiming to them. He made the world and everything in it. Uh, that's right. And that is a good summary there. I, I was looking down through the, the teaching of there, uh, and, and Tom mentions that he doesn't, he, all these temples you've made, the, these beautiful structures, uh, God doesn't need those. Right. Uh, he doesn't dwell in, in temples made with hands. Uh, he made the world, everything in it. He took out of one blood. Uh, he created the first man, and every nation of earth uh, came from that. Uh, I, I just thought it was pretty uh, incredible that they would have had different deities to different ideas or different uh, philosophies, different cultures, different things uh, within within uh, their, uh, their realm. And he says, the God that I'm telling you about uh, even in your co false concept of these false gods, uh, he's he's so much greater and bigger than than you can even imagine. Well, Paul, I think we could, I think we could do a series of lessons on those characteristics. You know that you're talking about. They're going over each one. It, there's a lot of meaty good scripture uh, there, but to save time, you know, I believe that that's the main point. Yeah. Was that you, John, that that piped in? No. Somebody I thought did no. Well, I apologize. Uh, when we look at this, the resurrection was certainly a controversial topic and something they were interested in hearing about, but uh, what was uh, difficult there and for them. And I asked the question, uh, how do the hearers respond to the teaching of the resurrection, Mike? Some believed, some didn't. Same reaction that you have today. It's interesting, though, that with one sermon you have a few obeying, the rest of them have to study about it a while, maybe reject it, but uh, it, it had the mixed reaction. We find the names of those that believed and obeyed and followed with Paul. Um, others simply said, we'll hear more uh, about this in a little while. Well, we'd like to hear more. Yeah. So I have this question, and uh, it's, it's probably the more difficult one uh, as far as... Uh, there may be some differences of thought here. And so I'm going to throw it to John. Um, can you find an example of a convert uh, in Scripture who put off obedience and they say, maybe later, or when I have a convenient time, or we will hear you again on this matter, and people who actually were converts, they actually came back at that later date and they were converted. I realize this while well, John's uh, pondering. You can't rule out that that was a possibility with some. But do we point to an idea of, oh, this person came back after having heard the preaching so many times and mm -hmm. then, then responded? John? There, okay. 
immediately what comes to mind, you know, are statements like by Agrippa and Festus and so forth. Um, and there's no evidence that they ever did obey. But what comes to mind is, and I forgot the city right offhand, but where they ask him to come back the next week and speak more on the matter. And in that case in point, it does result in many people becoming a Christian. But I don't think that fits what you're talking about. Typically, if someone would rather postpone the discussion to another time, at least from examples in scriptures, we don't see too many converts, you know, unless it's truly someone that needed to study more on the matter. I have had the experience, and, and I'd be interested. I know we're running a little over time, and if you need to chop it off right there and, and add a different ending, John, feel free to. But it's been my experience that people that I study with, some, they hear the gospel message, and they want to obey. And those who put it off often never obey. I, I had one girl in tears tell me, I'm ready to do this. I just need to take care of one thing. And then I will do that later this week, and uh, never, never. So, what what has been your experience with that? Uh, and I realize there are exceptions, and I'm sure I've had exceptions to the rule also. But is it more typical that people who put off obedience never obey, or do you find that people put it off, think about it, and come back? Uh, well, in, in the example, around, of my, in, in, in the years that I've been doing this, I've I've had both extremes. Paul, so don't be discouraged with it. One of the first people I ever baptized was an 82-year-old man that said he knew when he's 20 years old he should obey the gospel, and finally did. One of the youngest that I ever baptized, I personally questioned whether or not he was old enough to understand what he did. Went ahead and baptized him. Turned out to be one of the best song leaders I've ever known. We preachers can't question the mind of the receiver, and that's hard for us to do or to avoid. So I liken it this way, and then I'll let you go ahead with the rest of the panel. Through years of experience, for whatever that's worth, and a buck and a half plus that experience buys you coffee, you never plant the gospel in road gear. You have to be slow with it and then patient enough to let it grow. Then you're going to have to go back over the field and help cultivate it. Then you're going to have to fertilize it with the truth. It takes time to grow. It's very rare that somebody hears the gospel for the very first time and responds to it then and there. Though there were days when that happened, but not in not in later years, especially my lifetime, I've not seen that. It takes convincing. And because of the culture in which we are, and the mentality that most people want to sit with, they're gonna sit and stew about this, study it through, not from scripture necessarily, but from their own reasoning. Our job is to make sure that they reason it with Scripture, and that's the difficult part. Uh, and my experience in explaining that has been a little different because the folks who, who I have studied with and, and taken time to lay out the gospel plan with them, which may not happen in just one session, often you know three, four, five, half a dozen sure. sessions, that if at the end of that, when we talk about obeying the gospel and they say, uh, no, not now, I, I point them toward, I don't push, but I point them toward the Philippian jailer and say that in Bible times, when people yeah. obey the gospel, uh, they did it when they knew what to do. And yeah. putting it off is a dangerous thing. And uh, I, I've not found many who come back. Um, John, I think you were about to jump in a moment ago. 
Tell me about that. Well, I just I know of one one case, and I won't. I just want to mention the more details specifics, but I need to verify it. Anyway, years ago, a young couple was studying uh, with another family, and the wife made the decision to obey the gospel. And it took the husband, I think, another week or two to finally reach the same conclusion. Mm-hmm. You know, he just had to study on yeah, it more. I've had, and, I've had that experience yeah. several times. In asking the question, I was truly interested because I, I kind of wondered how many of those who said, come back later and we'll hear you again, or like uh, we read about with, with Paul's defense, uh, when I have a convenient time, uh, I'd like to know more about this. And uh, just uh, looking at that. Well, Tom, Paul... It, any oh go ahead oh i'm sorry in the case i think it was wasn't it festus who said go away when i have a more convenient time if you look at the the text there you find that he did have opportunity to talk with paul later and did have conversations with paul Mm -hmm. he he recalled him to come in his presence yeah yes yeah Mm -hmm. any uh, quick thought there tom Uh, that was felix by the way my no, my only observation in all of this is the warning to repent in Acts seventeen thirty one or thirty. Uh, it, it it's a part of what they need to do. That's right. You know, Best and uh, and and people do need to understand that in obeying the gospel. Well, I, I, have, I think mad. that's a great statement, Tom. I have been yeah. uh, more and more thinking about repentance and uh, how hard it is for people to truly change. Uh, absolutely and it, it is it is a hard thing you know it's hard for me to change uh, just anything you know uh, pick a color of paint or you know <laughs> yeah, and, and, and we need to make sure that people understand that when they become Christians and as they live as Christians I mean I I think that's one of the things that I guess I I, I, I don't want to judge but uh, I I think sometimes we fall short on making sure they understand what true repentance is because i mean that's so crucial to maintaining your faith as a christian and shelton any any thought that you uh, i know your experience is is more limited at this point than ours any any thought you want to share i know i uh, i enjoy listening to the more experience though you know hearing what y'all have to say uh the only thing i would just think at the top is that you know when you're talking about somebody who has heard the message but they're putting it off several times uh or if it's somebody like the rich young ruler who's just not willing to put off you know the ways of the old man you know or something like that or the possessions they hold dear uh it is easier and easier i think every time to put it off you know i think uh, if you put it off once putting it off the second time is a little bit easier putting it off the next time is a little bit easier until no longer you're even thinking about it. Um, but that's the only thing I would I would have to offer there. I think that's a good point. You become calloused to mm-hmm. if it touches your heart once and, and you're able to stop obedience, uh, it becomes easier and easier to do that. We had a had a lady that I, I talked to recently about uh, her conversion many years ago. And she said that, uh, I think it was on a Sunday afternoon, uh, maybe after leaving the, the morning services, she said to the preacher, I need to, I need to obey the gospel. You know, I, I, I'm ready to change. I need to make that confession. I need to be baptized into Christ. And he says, well, let's do that tonight. And she says, what if I die this afternoon? What if I, yeah. I leave here and I'm killed in a car accident? 
I wouldn't want to take a chance with my soul. And there is an urgency about the gospel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wanted to notice one thing here as you read this, and, and we didn't cover every nuance of this, but as you look at Paul's message to the Athenians, it's not the same message that he gives to a mostly Jewish audience. I don't read about scriptures being quoted here from the Old Testament like so often we have in some of the uh, messages. And that's not to say that he didn't ever mention an Old Testament scripture, uh, but what we have recorded for us uh, here as he dealt with his Gentile audience is he proclaimed to them a great God, the God of creation and the God of the resurrection and uh, such a powerful message that he brings forth to them and calls upon them to repent. And they say, well, uh, some of them did. Uh, and we read about the three there, I think. And some uh, said, we'll hear you again. Let's go back and grab the question really quick. I'm way over time. But is it good to be religious? And I think we do have an answer, it looks like, from Gregor. John, why don't you take that? Gregor writes, God never asked people to be religious. He asked us to worship him and follow his word. Jesus gave us a way to live, not a religion, through modern, though modern folks call it that. Well, I, I think I understand exactly what Gregor is saying. You know, religion uh, and, and being religious is something the Scripture speaks of. Uh, it talks about the person who uh, doesn't control his tongue and thinks he's religious. Uh, that, that's uh, incompatible. James talks about that. James also talks about that pure and undefiled religion uh, is to care for the orphans and the widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And so in that sense, we ought to be religious. We ought to be seeking to, as he says there, to worship God. But being religious in the sense of, um, you know, th this chapter made me think of a young man who I recently I had an opportunity to try to study with, and he let me know right away that, that well, he wanted to be a Christian, but he also wanted to be a pagan, and he also wanted to uh, be a Buddhist, and also wanted to be Hindu, and... Uh, he just wanted to, it's like he wanted me to teach the gospel to him as part of a, a world religions class. And I told him uh, that Christianity is very exclusive uh, in regard to that. You can't be this and that. Uh, Christ is the only way. And so not one of the ways or not part of a way. He is the way, the only way. And so it made me think of that. And so, you know, you guys have done a great job today helping me through uh, this study and I, I appreciate each one of you so much and all those who are listening today, uh, those who have chimed in, Gregor and others, and appreciate you so much. And it's time for me to stop and hand this back over to John to bring us to a swift conclusion. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate you leading us through our study today. I'd like to thank you for joining us for this study. We invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, click the bell notification so that you can receive uh, future notifications or the bell icon. Also follow us on Facebook as we've been, Paul mentioned to us at the start of the study. We'd love to hear from you to hear your thoughts and your comments. If all goes, goes according to plan next Wednesday, we will continue our study with cha Acts chapter 18. And I believe Brian is slated to lead next week's discussion. So hopefully you'll be able to join us as we continue our study through Acts. And that should be next week at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. That's noon in the Eastern Time Zone. 9 a.m. Pacific Time. <laughs> well, that's right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful day. <laughs>